reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do lift up the name of Jesus. Lord, it is the name that is worthy of praise. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears again to the King of glory, to this Jesus who has saved us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would grab a seat. Well, again, good morning. Well, this Advent, we have been in a series uh, where we're focused on our hunger for God. Uh, we've looked at our hunger for uh, his hope. We've looked at our hunger for his peace, for his joy. Uh, during the week, we've been fasting together as a community, asking the Holy Spirit to use that practice to deepen our longing, our hunger uh, for the Lord together. And as we end Advent, today is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, we want to talk about what it means to hunger for God's love. And so I want to invite you as we do that uh, to open up your Bibles. You can grab one of the blue Bibles in the seat back near you and open it up to the words I just read, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We're going to be looking at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. As you're opening there, um, I... Uh, I kind of stumbled on this, but apparently, I guess it was 26 years ago, this week, the week before Christmas, uh, the movie Schindler's List was released for the first time. Uh, how many of you have seen that movie before? Okay, good. Um, so I remember when I saw that movie, when it first came out, uh, it had a profound impact on me. Um, and if you haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it. It's it's a really powerful movie. It's the incredible story of, of Oscar Schindler. He's a German businessman who basically uh, worked to save and helped save more than a thousand uh, Polish Jewish refugees from the Holocaust during World War II. 
And um, at the end of the movie, if, you'll, if, you're, uh, if you've seen it, you'll be able to picture this. There's a scene at the very end of the movie where he's departing. He's saying goodbye to all the people that he's helped save who worked in his factory. And they're all saying goodbye to him. Uh, and in that moment, he has this really uh, incredible conversation with uh, a Jewish accountant, a man that's worked with him named Itzhak Stern. And I just want to recount that conversation really quick with you. Uh, Schindler says, I could have gotten more out. Stern says, 1,100 people are alive because of you. Schindler, if I'd had more money, if I'd just, you saved generations because of what you've done. I didn't do enough. You did so much. What about this car? He says, why did I keep this car? 10 people right here. 10 more people. This gold pen, two people, maybe one person. I could have gotten one more person. And in that moment, Schindler collapses to the ground in the arms of Stern and just begins to weep. And it's this powerful, poignant picture of love in the darkest of worlds. It's it's a love that sacrificed in order to rescue. And it's a picture, I think, of the kind of love, you know, there's all kinds of ways we can talk about love, but the kind of love I think that's pictured here is the kind of love that I think all of us, in the depths of who we are, we long to experience in this life. We are hungry for a love that can actually save us, that has power to rescue us. That's the kind of love that we long for. In the Old Testament, the word for love is ahava. Can you say that with me? Ahava. Ahava. It's uh, it's the word that's used over and over in all kinds of different contexts. Uh, It's used to describe the love between a father and a child. It's used to describe the love between uh, friends, between uh, lovers, between uh, even people and their king or people and their God. Ahava happens over and over and over in the Old Testament. And the New Testament picks up this idea of Ahava in 1 John 4, 8. And it says this, it says, God himself is love. God is Ahava, is what it says. In other words, God loves because God loves. He is love. It's who he is, an eternal affection that has no beginning and no end. It is who he is. And it's a love that moves him then to act in these self-giving ways for the good of humanity and good of creation. That's what you see unfolding in the story of scripture. Nowhere is God's achava, his love, more on display than in the person of Jesus. We know this verse, many of us know this verse, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's the achava of God. The love of God moved him to take that action. And Jesus himself is a powerful and poignant picture of God's love, a picture that stands in brilliant contrast 
to the darkness of the world into which he enters. And only when we see it in this contrast, only when we see it against this darkness, his entry into the world, the incarnation, does the rescuing love of God really come into focus. It's interesting, all the birth narratives, they bring this out, they highlight this, this contrast. You look at the Gospel of John with his epic poetic introduction where he declares, a light shines in the darkness. And then you look at Luke, he's got these brilliant angels appearing in the dark night sky, announcing to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And then in our reading in Matthew, God speaks to Joseph in a dream. He says, she will give birth to a son. Mary will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus comes into the world, into the darkness of the world to save his people from their sins. This is why he was born. This is why he was born into a dark, broken, and hurting world. And this is what the love of God looks like. It is a rescuing love, in other words. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider um, three things this morning. In light of, of, of the season of Advent and Christmas and what it means that Jesus has entered into the world, I want us to consider these three things. First, do we need a rescuing love? Do we actually need that kind of love? Are we convinced of that? Maybe we are, maybe we're not. Two, how has Jesus rescued us? How has Jesus actually come into the world to save us? And then three, why does it really matter? At the end of the day, why is it gonna matter to you when you walk out of here today if this is true? So first, do we need a rescuing love? You know, Advent is an interesting season. It runs, it kind of goes against the grain of everything that else is happening in kind of Christmas. And you can feel that, you can feel that, uh, you think about lyrics like uh, the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you just think about what is in that song, what it is singing, it's filled with themes of darkness, of exile, of captivity, of mourning, of judgment, of death. You know, before I really began to experience and understand Advent, uh, I thought that was out of place. Why would you spoil Christmas by bringing up all these kind of morbid topics, right? Why not focus on what's worth celebrating? Because there is so much worth celebrating and we should celebrate. But Advent has a very specific purpose, a very important purpose. It's trying to raise our awareness of reality, the reality in which we live. It pushes us towards an unflinching honesty about our circumstances, a world full of God's created beauty and goodness, but horribly marred by sin. So what is sin? Sin, I would define sin this way. I would say sin is humanity's choice to reject God and in turn to take life on its own terms and believe, uh, live in the way we believe is best. It's to reject God and his ways and live life as we see best. And so what Jesus has come into the world is to do is to deal with that reality and its consequences. And Advent brings all of that through its language, through its readings, through its mood, all that to the foreground. You know, what's interesting is for much of the history of the church, the Sunday before Christmas 
actually focused on the matter of hell. Isn't that interesting? That sounds so strange to us. I mean, first of all, that you'd spend any Sunday talking about hell, but especially the Sunday right before Christmas. It, it's part of a tradition called the four last things. Basically, the four Sundays of Advent were, were leading up to celebrating the birth of Jesus by looking at death, judgment, heaven, and hell. That's what you would have focused on over those four Sundays. And again, that sounds bizarre to us. As modern followers of Jesus, we don't like, really, I think, even think, don't like to think about this idea of hell, let alone, again, at Christmas. But I think, again, it was very intentional because it gave voice to the darkness, to the hell, in other words, in which Jesus himself was entering into. And it reminded the church of its need for a savior, of its desperate need for Christ. One Christian author, I thought, had a really helpful summary of the Bible's view of hell. She said it this way. She said, despite what we tend to think, hell is not a place. It's not a place. It's a domain. It's a reign. It's the domain of evil, the sphere where wickedness rules. It is, I believe, necessary to posit the existence of hell as a way of acknowledging the reality and power of radical evil. Because in the Bible, evil is not vague or limited to poor human choices. It is an evil intelligence determined on its own supremacy. I don't know if you ever thought about hell that way. We have a lot of caricatures and ideas, I think, floating around about hell. But hell as a realm, the realm of evil. We live in a world where radical evil is on the loose, don't we? a world where there is an enemy. You know, sometimes I think we think it's God and us, but there is actually an enemy, a spiritual enemy who is bent on using even well-meaning people and institutions for its purposes. A very real spiritual evil that uses lies and doublespeak plays to our pride and our selfish desires to promise us happiness and freedom when it delivers neither. In this way, Hell, the domain of evil, is a part of our earthly reality. It is part of what we experience now. Many followers of Jesus in our own day have shied away or even rejected the entire idea of hell. But Jesus himself taught that hell was real. And in his earthly ministry, he actually stressed and combated an imminent kingdom of evil and darkness. And intuitively, I think we, we know this to be a part of our reality. We know this, even if we wanna deny it, we know that we live in a world where there is evil present. Even in the safety and comfort of our own kind of Western society, where we try to insulate ourselves from so much of this, we experience it, we know it to be true. I mean, after all, how else do you explain a world where there are Auschwitzes and Pol Pots? How do you explain a world where there's millions of Rwandans Tutsis who are murdered, exterminated in a matter of 100 days? How do you explain a world where the color of a person's skin or their gender determines their value as a human being? How do you explain a world where children are raped for the entertainment of wealthy men, where in our culture, abortion and infanticide are actually talked about in terms of women's rights? How do you explain a world like that without radical evil. 
And it's not just loose on our world, it's loose on our community, on our lives. Evil is present, it bores into our lives through addictions to pornography that destroy our souls and our families. It, it fostered dependence on things like alcohol and other things that we use as kind of a comfort against the onslaught of anxiety and fear that we experience. and encourages us to hold grudges, to spread gossip, to hide harmful secrets from those that we love. Radical evil is loose in our lives. What the story of Jesus does, again, is it forces us to be honest about all of that. Not to show up on Sundays and pretend like everything is okay when it's not. To look out on the world and think everything is gonna work out if we just have better education or the right people in political office or whatever else solution we come up with. The story of Jesus wants to bring the dark reality of our lives into focus so that we can see how desperately we need his rescuing love. It names the consequences of our rejection of God and the Bible calls that hell. It is a place of hopelessness, of despair, of foolishness, and darkness. And yet into that darkness comes the messenger of God and he says to Joseph, do not fear. Do not fear. Mary is giving birth to a son and his name will be Jesus, which means God saves because he will save us from our sins. So we need to be rescued. But then the question is, how does Jesus rescue us? How can Jesus rescue us from this darkness that we find ourselves in? I wonder if Joseph was asking some similar question in this moment. His world was crashing in on him. His virgin bride uh, had told him that she was expecting a baby in their tiny village. In this day and age, in this culture, it would have been a horrible scandal. It would have been devastating to him, to his family. Her life would have been at risk. It was a moment of darkness and anger and confusion. And in that, he felt the right thing to do was to divorce her, to just end it, to give up. I think probably in a moment of despair. But the angel says, do not fear. This child's name which means God saves, will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph would have heard those words and he would have known exactly what that referred to, what that meant. He knew God's prophecies and God's promises to come and save his people from the hell that humanity had created. Jesus was the promised savior. Something new, in other words, was happening. Something that was extraordinary. It was the advent of a new reality in the person of Jesus. And Joseph at least had some understanding of that because of what the angel told him. As Fleming Rutledge says, when Jesus entered the world, it was a collision of the ages where the struggle of the enemy against God continued, but space now have been made for the conquering love of God to enter the world. In other words, what she's saying is Christmas is like a heavenly invasion. It is a rescue operation that culminates in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. 
It is the taking back, in other words, of creation from the realm of radical evil and establishing the kingdom of God in this place on the earth. That's what happens at Christmas. All that begins. I love how Eugene Peterson says this. He paraphrases Romans 5. I just want to read it to you. He says, Christ arrives right on time to rescue us. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even, when we ha- even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble can inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but, but God, God put his love on the line for us by offering his son and sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. See, Jesus' birth is a breakthrough moment. It is heaven breaking through into the kingdom of darkness. It is God's answer to the desperate cry of humanity. Someone do something. Someone help us. Someone save us from ourselves. And the answer is Jesus. You see, we are a people who are hungry for love. And what God has done is he has shown us the love that we are hungry for, a love committed to rescuing us out of hell, the hell of our own making. A God who is committed and loves us enough to sacrifice everything for us. A God who loves us enough to suffer the consequences of our rebellion and disarm evil. A God who would do whatever it takes to bring a kingdom of radical love to displace the kingdom of radical evil. That's what God has done. And at Christmas, it's the beginning of the end for evil. It was the beginning of a new age. And one day, Jesus will return to finish what he started. He will establish a new earth where there is no hell, where there is no evil, where there is no evil one. Romans 6, 9 says, death will have no dominion. Revelation 21 says, pain and suffering will be wiped from the earth. There will be no place for it in the universe in which Messiah, King Jesus, reigns forever and ever. This is the rescuing love of God. This is how God will save us through his son, Jesus. It is salvation out of sin and hell into heaven, a reality free from evil and death, a world conquered by love. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So why does it matter? Why does all this matter? What difference does it make when it's all said and done? I wanna give you three quick things that I think really matter because of this. Why does this matter? First, because we all need to be rescued. We all need to be rescued. We need hope beyond what this life can offer. There is no lover, no spouse, no family, no job, no amount of money, no political leader or party, no institution that can rescue us and make this world right. Jesus alone can save us. The truth is none of us can escape the pain and suffering of this life apart from God's help. None of us will love our neighbors as ourselves. None of us will love God with our whole heart. All of us will die. We need a God who loves us enough to come for us and rescue us. We need a God like that. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, what you've done, where you find yourself in this moment or this Christmas, 
The truth is that God loves you. That is the good news of Christmas. And that he has done everything to demonstrate that love to you in the person of Jesus. And so he invites you to trust him, to trust that he loves you, to trust him with your life, to give yourself over to the God of love and to follow him. So first, we need this because we all need to be rescued. Second, because we need to remain resilient. We need to remain resilient. While Jesus has defeated radical evil on the cross and by the resurrection, it still wages war against us. The world we live in is hard. Many of us feel the weight, the burden, the blows of this life even now. More than ever in our culture, we as followers of Jesus, I would say need to remain resilient. We need to trust not in our circumstances, but in the promise that Jesus reigns and that he'll return. We need to be people who live our present in light of the future that will come, that is promised, that is true. That when the world pressures us to lose faith or to compromise, to give up what we know to be true, that God, we can trust because he's already secured victory for us in Jesus with life beyond this life. So our hope is in Christ and we long for his return. So that makes us into resilient people. And then the third thing is because we are called to love. We are called to love. As followers of Jesus, we have become part of his kingdom invasion, his kingdom rescue mission. And the weapon that God has given us is radical love. That is the weapon, the spiritual weapon that we have. Love that is anchored in salvation, that brings hope, that brings joy, that brings justice. Love that brings salvation, that rescues those out of darkness and out of the grip of evil and death, that allows us to say no to the evil of this world because of who Christ is. Darkness, no darkness, is greater than the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so until he returns, we live as living signs of the promises of his kingdom. We live in such a way that we know the power of the Holy Spirit is in us and that we can push back the darkness of evil in this life. We stand of sign as a sign of what's real. And what's real is that Jesus will return and evil will be destroyed. So I wanna encourage you, as we enter into this season of Christmas, as we trans uh, kind of fur from Advent into celebrating Jesus' birth, remember that he's come, he's come to rescue you. Remember that he is with you. He is Emmanuel, God with you. You can stand in the strength of Christ in this world, even as evil assaults you. And remember that you have the love of Christ in you, that you stand as a sign of the kingdom that has come, of the conquering love of a rescuing God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just mindful of the fact that many of us this morning feel the assault of the enemy. Lord, it may come in the form of apathy or of doubt or of fear. And Lord, my prayer this Christmas is that maybe for the first time, even though it's a familiar story, that we might consider your love for us in Jesus and why it matters that you came into this world, why 
it matters that you came to save us and rescue us. That we might consider the possibility that indeed we need to be rescued and you are the only one who can save us. Lord, I know some of us just feel beaten down by the world. And Lord, especially at Christmas, we feel the pain of that, the loss, the heartbreak. And so I just pray comfort. Holy Spirit, that you would bring comfort to your people. That we might remain strong in our faith and resilient as we follow you. Lord, I pray that we would just experience the fullness of your love in our lives, that it might overflow into the lives around us. That we love you and thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.